Let's get into our message for today. So we're going to be looking today, as you see there, verses 16 to 20 of Mark chapter 1. And if you're not aware, you know, we're going through the book of Mark verse by verse. It's 16 chapters long, so it might take us a little time. And we might even break away from Mark from time to time and look at other passages or other topics for a little bit and then come back and pick up where we left off in Mark. But, of course, the goal over time is to just work our way through verse by verse all the way to the end of this gospel. And here's my prayer for us as we go along. I heard H.B. Charles Jr., wonderful pastor, preacher, I heard him say this one time, and it is my prayer for all of us. He said, I'm praying that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to change the children of God to look more like the Son of God. I love that. I'm praying that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. And I have confidence that the Lord's going to do that because that falls right in line with His revealed will for what He wants for us. So He'll answer that prayer. I'm confident of that. So, today we're looking at the call of Christ. Let's read our passage. It's Mark 1, 16 through 20, and it says this. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. We'll stop there for this morning. This passage is directly describing the call of the first four disciples, or to be exact, the first four apostles, Andrew, Simon, or Peter, James, and John. Two sets of brothers, all of them fishermen, and I would just like to look at four different aspects of Jesus' call to them, okay? Number one, the peculiarity of Christ's call, the peculiarity of Christ's call, the call that's issued from Jesus to these men to follow him is kind of peculiar. It's it's strange. It's a little bit odd. For instance, it's odd that Jesus would call these men to be his disciples, to be his followers. Why is that strange? Well, if you go on to read through the New Testament, you end up seeing what you end up seeing that it was these men whom God used to be the foundation of the entire Christian church. Ephesians 2:19 through 20 says that the household of God, which is the church, was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So it was these particular men who would live directly with Jesus for three years. It was these men who would travel with Jesus everywhere he went. 
It was these men who Jesus poured his life into for those three years. It was these men who got a front row seat to everything that Jesus said and did in his earthly ministry. And it was to these men that God granted signs and wonders and miracles that would confirm that their gospel message was actually from God. And it was these men who would pin down words from God, the very words of God that would form the New Testament scriptures that we have here in front of us. It was basically these men who basically turned the world upside down, as somebody once said. And the effect is still ongoing, isn't it? And so, I guess if you know all that going into this passage, you're sort of left wondering... Jesus kind of missed the ball there. Why did he pick these men for such an important foundational role in the church? Because by our our standards, right, we would expect to see Jesus picking people who are prominent in the community, perhaps. People who had extensive education. Um, People who were the influencers of the day. People who everyone looked up to. If you wanted to pick people who were going to be the foundation of the church, you would want to pick people who could attract other people, right? You want people who can make an impact. You want people who are super influential, in other words. But really, none of that was true about these men. And that is yet another example of this fact. God's ways are not our ways. All four of these disciples, these first four disciples, were just lowly fishermen. Isn't that interesting? That is peculiar, at least in comparison to human wisdom. And I'm just struck at how God operates his kingdom. Aren't you? He chooses uneducated fishermen to be the foundation of the church. And likewise, he chooses nobodies like us to be his followers as well. And he makes it his practice to do so. That's amazing. Turn with me for a moment over to a passage in 1 Corinthians. Will you turn to 1 Corinthians 1? I'd like to read a few verses there that makes this more clear, I think. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26. First Corinthians 1, 26. We'll read it in just a second, but... While we're thinking about the odd choices of Jesus for his first disciples, for his first followers, let's think about his odd choice of you to be a disciple, if you truly are one this morning. Consider your own calling, is what Paul says here. Let's read it. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. The Bible says, For consider your calling, brothers... Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, here's why he did it, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. The reason that God chooses the lowly and not the mighty is because he wants to make it plain to the world that the power is in him and not in someone else. He says it right there in verses 29 and 31. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And in verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in who? In the Lord. Think about this little illustration for a second. If I were a basketball coach, and I could pick any players I want to be on my team, but I want to showcase my coaching skills, I could do that a few ways, right? I could choose really good players. I could put Michael Jordan on my team, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, you name it, other players like that. But then when we won every game, what would people probably say? They wouldn't be saying, the coaching is just awesome on this team. They wouldn't give the credit to the coach. They'd be saying, well, of course you guys won every game. You've got an all-star team. You've got the best players in the world on your team. But suppose I chose instead a bunch of no-name players, people that nobody had ever heard of, people with no experience hardly playing basketball, people with very little skill even. And suppose we won every game then. What would people be saying then? Coach, put a mic in front of me, you know. Coach, how did you do this? Coach of the year, right? Interviews, speaking engagements, and so forth. In other words, the glory, the credit would go to me, the coach, for taking a bunch of inexperienced, lackluster players and making a winning team out of them. In essence, that is what God has done with his church. It's not a perfect example, but it's just an illustration. He did it with his apostles, and he's doing it with us. He chooses his followers in such a way that when the, when the power of God surges through the world by the preaching of the gospel, no one can say, well, of course people are going to come to Christ. Those Christians are the most powerful influencers and speakers on the whole planet. Nobody's saying that because we're not. Instead, God has chosen the lowly, the uneducated often, the foolish, the weak, the lowly, the nobodies for the purpose of removing 
human boasting from the equation. He chooses the lowly so it will be totally obvious that all the glory should go to him. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. This is the famous English pastor in the 1600s. You can find his commentaries for free online. It will help you in your Bible study. You should look those up. Matthew Henry. He says this. The instruments Christ chose to employ in setting up his kingdom were the weak and foolish things of the world. Not called from the great Sanhedrin or the schools of the rabbis, but picked up from among the tarps by the seaside, that the excellency of the power might appear to be holy of God and not at all of them, end quote. So in picking these fishermen to be apostles, Jesus is almost foreshadowing how he plans to call other disciples, like us. He calls the lowly. He calls the least impressive so that his glory and power might be more apparent to people, to the, more apparent to the world. Another thing that's kind of peculiar, kind of odd about the calling of these four men is that this is not the way that the rabbis chose their students or their followers. They did not go around handpicking their students. It was the students who sought out the rabbi. Who do I want to learn the law from? I'm going to go follow him. But here, Jesus, the greatest rabbi and more than a rabbi the great teacher, goes out and handpicks his students. When you think of it that way, um, becoming a disciple of Christ is less of an achievement and more of a gift. Do you and I realize that? What a gift it is that Jesus made you his disciple if you're one today. Remember from a couple weeks ago when we looked at John 3 and the new birth? God had to give you new birth before you'd even see the truth. He did that. He chose you if you're a Christian this morning. That's why we sang this morning, my Lord, I did not choose you. It's my desire as a pastor of this church to have this church see the glory of God in his sovereign grace to sinners. Let's give him all the glory for our salvation. He deserves it. Let's move on to a second aspect of this call. Not only is it peculiar in several different ways, and we could talk more about that, but we also see the power of Christ's call. Did you notice what all four of these men did when Jesus called them? They followed him immediately. Look at it with me again. Verse 17. Jesus says, follow me. And what does it say in verse 18? And immediately they left their nets and followed him. (laughs) Same thing down in verse 20 involving James and John. Immediately they left their father and the hired servants in the boat and they followed Jesus. And there's other details given um, in the other Gospels about the call 
of these men. But I noticed, and I'm sure you noticed, that Mark didn't include all those details. He's very sparse. Why do you think that is? I think it's because Mark wants to emphasize not the men's response so much as the power and the authority of Christ's call. These men had met Jesus before this. This wasn't the first time they'd ever saw him. Um, They'd heard John the Baptist tell them that Jesus was the Lamb of God. You can read about that encounter in the first chapter of John. I believe it's verse 35 to 39. They knew that he was the Messiah. John told them that, and they believed that. But here, their relationship with Jesus takes a huge leap forward. He tells them, follow me. And they do. And I just want us to remember, when we think about that, that Jesus, although he is fully man, he is also the sovereign son of God. He commands and it happens. Colossians 1 teaches us that Jesus created everything. Colossians 1.16 And the psalmist, back in Psalm 33, says, God spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And like God the Father, when Jesus speaks, things happen. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. It says in Colossians, he upholds everything by the word of his power. And even in the call of these first disciples, I think we see an element, at least, of Jesus' sovereignty. Yes, it does involve an act of these men's will to follow Jesus, but I'm just reminded of Philippians 2, where God says, it is God who works in us both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Jesus looks at them and calls them in a way that only he can. And what do they do? They obey. They come. We shouldn't be surprised because remember the wind and the waves obey their master. We'll see that later on in Mark. But so do these whom Jesus sovereignly calls. And it works that way in salvation too. The dead come alive when the Spirit says, come. We could take time to look through All the passages in Scripture where God refers to Christians as the called ones. Called. It's God who does the calling. And when that inward, effectual call comes from God, sinners come. He makes them new. If you're a Christian, you've been through that. There was once a time when you experienced that sovereign call. Maybe it wasn't the first time you heard the gospel. Maybe it was the hundredth or the thousandth time you heard the gospel. But when God wanted to bring you to himself, his call went out by his gospel and it struck its target. And you finally saw the truth. And the result was you followed him. Jesus' call to these men was one of power And his call to us is is no less powerful. We have to remember that. It's a miracle of divine grace 
Recognize him for that and worship him for that. The power of Christ's call. What about this? The purpose of Christ's call here. He says in verse 17 again, follow me. And here's his purpose. And I will make you become fishers of men. He takes fishers of fish and makes them into fishers of men. In other words, they're, not, they're no longer going to be focusing on catching fish, but on catching people. They're no longer going to be focused on pulling in fish into the boat, but instead they'll be focused on bringing people into the kingdom of God. By the way, isn't it the same for us as disciples? If you're saved today, you are called to be a fisherman of people. You're an angler for men. You're tasked, all of us are, with taking the good news of Jesus to the entire world. And yes, I know, we could make excuses, can't we? We're good at excuses. All of us are. I'm not a very good evangelist. I think I'll just leave that to the people who are good at that kind of thing. But did you notice, Jesus doesn't go around looking for people who already have some sort of skill that he thinks he can use. Do you notice what he tells them? He says, I will make you into fishers of men. I'll turn you into that. You don't have to have some prerequisite of some skill for that. I will make you become fishers of men. He's going to change them and grow them and teach them. And that's what he does with us as well. Every single Christian became or is becoming a better evangelist. We, we recognize Scripture's teaching on this, I hope. We put it in our church covenant. Listen to point 10 of the church covenant. I will pray for, seek, and actively proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of my family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, acquaintances, and people of all nations. And that's not a made-up rule for a church covenant that comes from outside Scripture. That comes from Scripture, right? And that can take on various forms. That can mean inviting people to church so they'll hear the gospel here. But it also means all of us taking an interest in those people around us and having personal conversations about the gospel outside of this place. By the way, that's why you and I are still here. You think about that? Why doesn't the Lord just save us and then immediately take us to heaven? Why the delay? Because he's got a job for us to do. And it involves being a fisher of men. You say, well, I'm not a, I don't feel like a very good fisher of men most days. That's okay. <laughs> Remember who God uses? He uses weak things, lowly things. If you're a Christian, you have the gospel. You know the truth, right? You know what condition Every human being is in by default. They're lost and they're separated from God and there is nothing that we can do about it within our own power, right? But God 
in love, sent Jesus, his son, to rescue us from that condition and to rescue us from the penalty of sin. And he, he did it by, he, he comes here, becomes a human, he lives perfectly the life that we could not live. He dies the death that we should have died. And then he rises from the dead three days later, proving that everything he said was approved by God and true. And in order to be made right with God, we must repent of our sin, right? Turn from our sin, turn to Jesus in faith. And whoever does that, Jesus saves them. He pronounces them forgiven, righteous before God. As far as legally in the courtroom of heaven, God sees them, that person who has repented and come to Jesus Christ in faith, God sees them as righteous as Jesus is. Amazing. Even though in practice, while we're still on this earth, we're not perfect. We're nowhere close. But for the rest of our lives, God takes those people, works in us, and makes us slowly more like Jesus. It's called sanctification. And it'll be a constant growing process from, from now all the way till we die and be with Christ. And because of what Christ has done, we can have eternal life with him and we receive all of the promises that come along with that. I mean, that's the basics of the gospel in like two minutes. So let me just encourage you this morning. You do not have to come up with some fancy gospel presentation in order for the gospel to be effective. You realize this? God makes it effective. It just needs to be told. It needs to be out there. It needs to be shared. The good news needs to be proclaimed. And you and I are God's mouthpieces if we're Christians. Remember what Romans 1.16 says? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power. Not your oratory skills or the genius of your presentation or the skill or charm of your communication. It's not your ability to answer every hard question that people might ask you. It's okay if you don't have all the answers. You have something more valuable than anything in this entire universe. You have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just share it and watch God work. Sometimes we won't even see the results in our lifetime. That's okay. You don't see a tree very quickly after you plant the seed either, right? It takes time. I love what um, Charles Bridges wrote. He wrote a classic work called The Christian Ministry. It's published in 1830. And he said this about planting gospel seeds. He said, The seed may lie under the clods until we lie there and then spring up. 
I love that quote. In other words, the seeds that we plant by sharing the gospel, they may not spring up until you're dead and gone, until I'm dead and gone. May not see any results in your lifetime. That's okay. The timing is up to God. We plant and we water, but God gives the increase. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. So don't worry about getting results, quote unquote. Just share the gospel and God will use it as he sees fit. Amen? Here's another thing that's very much related to this. Um, Not only is evangelism the task of every Christian, discipling others is the task of every Christian. Consider a simple question with me. Are you, and I'm asked this of myself, so I'm putting my play, my, myself in your place here. Are you helping other people follow Jesus? Are you helping other people follow Jesus? That is what discipling is. And that's one reason, among others, among many, to be part of a local church, right? So you can help these people follow Jesus better, and they can help you follow Jesus better. There's a man I greatly respect, Mark Dever. He's a pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Some of you read his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. He asked these questions very pointedly. And I'll ask them in the same way and just let them sit with you for a second, okay? Are you ready? Hope you're ready. He says, are you a follower of Jesus? Here's the first question. If so, are you helping other people follow Jesus? And he says, if you answered no to the second question... But yes to the first. In other words, you say you're a follower of Jesus, but you aren't helping other people follow Jesus in any meaningful way. Dever says, I want to know what you mean by I'm a follower of Jesus. The Bible seems to teach that the task of every Christian is to be helping others follow Jesus. It's in the Great Commission itself. Go and make what? Disciples. Matthew 28. So the question there that Mr. Dever is asking is essentially this. If you're not helping others follow Jesus, are you really following Jesus like you think you are? It's it's convicting, isn't it? It's a convicting thought. So I want to encourage you today, though, in your evangelism, in your discipleship, pour your life into sharing the gospel with people. Pour your life into helping other people follow Jesus, especially these people who you've covenanted with as a member of this church, if you are one. Pour your life into helping people follow Jesus in whatever way that you can come up with that's biblical. Encouragement, hospitality, invite people over to your house, have conversations about the Lord. Read a book together that's God-focused. Read scripture together. Meet together and talk about the Lord together. There's a host of ways to do it, right? We just need to do it. 
In Scripture, uh, in Proverbs 11, verse 30, it says, Whoever captures souls is wise. Another place, Daniel 12, 3, speaks of the wisdom of those who turn many to righteousness. And the Apostle Paul said that his goal was to see people saved. 1 Corinthians 9, 22. Then when you think about Christ and why he came, all these puzzle pieces are fitting together. Why did Christ came? He said he came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19, 10. It is no small thing that Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, makes disciples. And he tells them that they're going to make other disciples. The kingdom of God multiplies through obedient disciples doing what Jesus commanded them to do. Thank God for faithful disciples, right? Somebody told you about the gospel. Ultimately, you're saved this morning if you are because some Christian down the line, all the Christians from the beginning of, t- of the church till now, they took Christ's call to discipleship seriously. They thought, Christ was worthy enough, they thought the gospel was sweet enough to share it with you. And here you sit. Let's continue the legacy, shall we? That's what I'm saying. Let's be as faithful as possible. Are we doing that? May God help us to do so. I just want to throw these questions out there and prick our minds to reassess every now and then. Am I doing that? Am I being an evangelist? Am I helping other people follow Jesus? Or just say it in one word, am I discipling others? It doesn't have to be a formal sit-down discipleship group. It can be a meal. It can be playing basketball and hanging out. Anything. May God help us to do these things. Lastly, for today, let's look at The particularity of Christ's call. I had to use a big word because I was using P words to keep it simple. I I don't come up with those outlines very often, so I tried to stick with the P's this morning. The particularity of Christ's call. I noticed here that Jesus doesn't tell these four men to follow a religious tradition. He doesn't tell them to follow a trendy worship leader. He doesn't tell them to follow the latest cultural fad in order to infiltrate the culture somehow. He doesn't tell them to follow a polarizing politician. Instead, he says what? Follow me. The call is very particular. Christians are followers of Jesus. They are not primarily part of a political system. They are not primarily part of a certain cultural group. They are primarily disciples of Jesus. Followers of Jesus. This is the will of God for your life. To follow Jesus. 
is pretty simple, actually, isn't it? It's not always easy, but it's very easy to understand. We complicate it with all sorts of things. It doesn't have to be complicated, though. Follow Christ. That's it. Follow Christ. Live your life in such a way that your priority to follow Jesus is obvious to others. What if Christians were primarily known as people who follow Jesus? We're known for all kinds of things, some of them not good. I'm speaking of Christianity in general, right? What if people thought, I have a question about the Word of God, about the Bible. I have a question about prayer. I have a question about following Jesus. I know who I can go to. I know someone. I know this man, this woman. They follow Jesus. I want them to help me. Live your life in such a way that it, be just, it becomes obvious what your priorities are. And those priorities extend to every area of life. What do people see you doing? What do people hear you saying? What do people read you posting on social media? Be careful how you use it. Steward it well. I hope this has helped you think some different, of some different aspects of Jesus' call here. Not only to these four men in Mark 1, but the call he has given to you. His call's peculiar. He calls the lowly, the nobodies. It's powerful. He sovereignly calls his disciples. It's for a purpose, the purpose of making other disciples, being fishers of men, and it is particular. It's a call to follow him, not other things. Are you following anything other than Christ himself? Does something else have all of our attention? If so, we can correct course. May God use this to help us correct course if need be. He's brought these things to our attention for a reason, right? And I'm thankful that he's patient with his people. When we stray and we get our priorities all out of whack, he's patient. He teaches us. May we be the disciples that he's called us to be. Amen? Let's pray and close. Father, we long to be better followers of you. We want to be better evangelists. We want to be better at discipling other people. Lord, we fear that we don't do so many times because our heart is so cold toward you. Lord, stoke the fires in our heart. Kindle the zeal for your kingdom in us. Cultivate, Lord, a love for you and a love for your gospel that it would just become a joy to share it with others. And help us to realize, Lord, the results are in your hands, not ours. Just make us faithful to share it. Help us as a church, as a body of believers to become 
better at helping each other follow Jesus. Show us ways that we can do just that even better than we're doing now. We have much improvement that we could do here. Lord, help us. We give you all the praise and the glory this morning for our calling. Thank you that you call nobodies to be followers of you, the King of Kings. Thank you for your promise to bring us home one day to be with you. We are longing for that day. Until then, though, Lord, make us obedient children and disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.